Hello, it's time for episode two of the Pink Podcast, and today we're going to chat all about sustainability. I'm your host, Chloe Nelkin, and I'm joined by the amazing John Morgan, Ollie Savage, and Osnam Thompson. John is director of Theatres Trust, which is an amazing organisation that champions the future of live performance by protecting and supporting excellent theatre buildings to ensure that they can meet the needs of their communities. John has previously worked with organisations including the Federation of Scottish Theatre, the Edinburgh Festival Fringe and Contact Manchester. Ollie co-founded The Greenhouse in 2018. They're the UK's first zero-waste theatre company who create top-quality, award-winning art in a radically sustainable way. He's particularly excited by plays with music, storytelling and making work for unusual spaces, like The Greenhouse itself. Our third guest, Oslam, is a contemporary artist who has a scientific background and a love of nature. She strives to be sustainable in her practice, including having some partnerships with some really exciting brands. So, climate crisis is an unavoidable truth of the world that we live in, and arts organisations and indeed artists themselves are having to take drastic steps towards sustainability. So with Theatres Trust, John, sustainability is very much at the core of what you do. And you've worked to create the Theatre Green Book UK, which is a grassroots initiative that sets common standards for sustainable theatre across all areas of theatre practice and organisation. And it's been hugely picked up already by the sector. So for you, what do you think is the biggest challenge in getting arts organisations to act more sustainably? And how does the Theatre Green Book help this? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think, you know, nobody would be surprised to hear just how tricky and difficult it's been for theatre sector mm. over the last few years. And so there's all sorts of reasons why people might put sustainability lower down their list of priorities. Covering from the COVID pandemic, cost of living crisis, audiences not being back at the levels that the people would like them to be. But you can't really do one without the other. If you want to be resilient as a theatre, you also need to be sustainable because increasingly there's been some recent research that said that about 77% of audiences uh, want their theatres to be dealing with sustainability. So eventually audiences and artists are going to demand it. I mean, that's already happening. So we really don't have any choice. We have to become more sustainable, obviously because it's the right thing to do, but also because it's the sensible thing to do in terms of making your theatre more resilient and attractive to artists and audiences. And do you think audiences want theatres to do things that they can visibly see with immediate effect? So they walk into a building and know it's sustainable? I mean, that's a tricky thing because a lot of the stuff, particularly for buildings, is not that visible. And maybe also for productions as well, Ollie. You could probably talk a bit more about that. But so much of it is about things like making sure the building is well insulated, making sure that you have kind of a timer switches on lights and all sorts of other things. I mean, there's a lot more detail in the Theatre Green Book about that. And so that's not necessarily very sexy and not necessarily stuff that people are going to see. So I think it's really important that theatres communicate what they're doing so that audiences know that they're working on this. And in a way, it's our job to sort of lead by example as well, you know, both in terms of what we put on stage, but also how we run our organisations. Yeah, 100%. And Ollie, of course, the greenhouse, you talk all the time about it being zero waste. So that's very much part of your branding. So what do you think the audiences take away when they see that you're a zero waste space? Well, I suppose the idea is that we strive to make really high quality work. Obviously, we're an arts organisation and that's what we're putting out into the world. So if we weren't making good art, we wouldn't really have a job. And so it's important to us that 
people aren't just recognizing that we're making work in a zero waste way. We're making good work in a zero waste way. We don't have to compromise. And I think there is this idea around sustainability that, you know, you've got to grow your hair out long and you can't use deodorant and you can't shower and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But in reality, you can still deliver really high quality, really important work in a way that adheres to really, you know, basic or more advanced sustainability principles. We were just talking then about like buildings and how buildings kind of can update themselves and can be more sustainable. And I think that's a really good example. You know, a lot of that can take place behind the scenes and a lot of that just because it isn't noticeable doesn't mean it isn't really, really important. But for us, frontlining it and talking about making it noticeable and talking making it the center of our branding hopefully encourages people to rethink how they approach sustainability in their everyday life. Again, recognizing they don't need to compromise to still kind of live more sustainably and in a more eco-friendly way. I think that's a really interesting point as well. It's that not compromising. And just mm. because you're being sustainable, it doesn't mean that suddenly you're having to produce something weird or <laughs> yeah. compromise on what you're making. And actually, like, Oslam, the changes that you've made to your practice with sort of the materials that you use and things is a perfect example of that. You've not compromised on the kind of work you're making, have you? You've just tried to make your practice more sustainable. Since I started professionally painting in 2018, I started to use my brushes very carefully so I don't need to buy brush all the time or filtering the water waste with the coffee filters so the chemicals don't go under the sink directly and mix with the normal water. I think they are very important small steps for artists can do in daily life. And I did lots of sustainable brand collaborations. First, I did in Italy, one in Sicily. They did a T-shirts, organic T-shirts, and they were planting a hemp trees for each T-shirt gets sold in Sicily, which was amazing. Two university students did that. And also I did another collaboration in Denmark, sitting suites. They are producing coats like outdoor coats and they are 100% made of uh, plastic bottles mm -hmm. and they use my paintings printing on them and they look really really unique and amazing like very limited amount also so people really like to have one that's great because then also that's sharing the message about using those plastics and things like that to create yeah. something new I'm trying to be very careful about it because I believe that children deserve a much better future yeah, most definitely. I like your point about small things as well. I think sometimes people feel a bit daunted by the challenge of you know, working more sustainably, but there are loads of really, really small steps that you can take. And doing something, even if it's small, is better than doing nothing. It's part of a journey. Uh, I'll give you an example of a catering manager in a theatre who noticed how many chips they were throwing away after mealtime from the restaurant. And so they just decided to make the chip portion slightly smaller. <laughs> they made more money and they saved on waste. So that's a really small thing that you can do. But it's those small things that have huge impacts, mm. isn't it? And I think something interesting that's affecting both theatre and art is sort of thinking about our carbon footprint. So obviously with artworks being shipped to collectors and buyers around the world, with theatre having props and sets delivered. So how has everybody thought about that in terms of the buildings we work with or the greenhouse or getting your works to collectors around the world? What changes have you made? So I... You refused using crates, first of all, because they are really, really heavy and cost a lot of money as well. And I try to use cardboards instead all the time. And if the collector is somewhere in the UK, I am telling them to come and pick the painting up. So we don't have to pack it and ship it, which is very important. 
also rolled up canvases is very practical. And I send all around the world my paintings in the rolled up tubes and they can reframe it wherever they are receiving it. And it's also very important because, I mean, even small steps will make a huge difference. So, Yeah, again, it's that small thing, isn't yeah. it? It's about people thinking, oh, well, we can't help because yeah. we're unimportant. But actually, yeah. if each person starts to act on those small steps, it could make a huge change. Yes, yeah. exactly. I think the issue of transport is, unfortunately, a much wider systemic, can be seen as a much wider systemic issue, though, because... With the greenhouse, for example, right, a lot of what we do is based around our pop-up venue. And that, you know, weighs a number of tons. And the only real way we can transport that is in a big Luton van. We don't really have a solution short of carrying it across London and up and down the country. I mean, that would be interesting Yeah, too. it would be fun. Maybe that's a whole show in and of itself. I mean, there are companies that, you know, if you think about the handlebars, for example, companies that are really innovative, that have found ways to make what they do low carbon and transport their set in a way that's sustainable. But... For an organization like us, unfortunately, there just isn't a solution. Short of maybe raising enough money to buy an electric van or something like that, that's a wider systemic issue. And I think when we come up against those challenges, we need to be asking ourselves less about what do we need to do to reduce the footprint of like transport. Obviously, we should be thinking about that. And more thinking about how as a society should we be building transport networks that mm. can effectively and efficiently move things in a way that isn't doing yeah, huge damage to the planet. Absolutely. How can we decarbonize the grid? Because even if you had an EV van, yeah. an electric van, the EV infrastructure right now in the isn't UK great. is not yeah. great. And, and the so, grid consumes so much carbon as well. So, yeah. so yeah. there was, you know, you can only do what's possible within the kind of context mm-hmm. you're working in. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the jury's out whether touring in terms of transport is worse mm-hmm. than audiences traveling a long distance. Well, yeah. So that's why I'm passionate in terms of theatres trust about having theatres in every community mm-hmm. on appropriate size and appropriate scale for those communities so that people don't have to travel to the West End or whatever to see shows. I mean, there are certain kinds of shows that you're not going to see unless you travel to the West End, arguably. But we want to try and minimise how much people feel the need to do that. And also, you know, some people are thinking about ways of incentivising audiences to make sure they use public transport where it's available. So ticket discounts if you use public transport instead of driving, getting rid of their car parks, putting in bicycle parking spaces instead. You know, there's all sorts of things you can do to incentivize your audiences to also behave in more sustainable ways. Another thing I think is it's about culture change as well. I'm quite keen to move to a point where we say to an audience in the winter, so it's going to be colder in the theatre tonight. Mm -hmm. We're not going to put the heating right up to make you feel like it's always 21 degrees. And in the summer, it's going to be hotter in the theatre. I'm not suggesting we get rid of aircon completely, but that we don't kind of like try and create this sort of ultimate comfortable environment and pretend that it's not winter outside or summer Mm -hmm. outside. And I think that's just culturally, I think we just have to get people there. I wonder if you make that point specifically targeted at the greenhouse, because that's, (laughs) you know, we don't, well, just just, we don't have any insulation. So when Uh the venue pops up, we're outside and it's exactly that it's yeah it's going to be warm and a big problem that we've had is debates around like can we operate during the winter Mm. we're currently working on a winter project but it's in a slightly different kind of setup but the debate with my colleagues and the board and that kind of thing has come down to there's this saying in like Scandinavia I'm I'm sure you've heard of it which is uh, there's no such thing as bad weather only bad clothes (laughs) which I think is is so fitting fitting. and you know we we learned that during COVID didn't we we were all sitting outside of pubs and I ate Christmas dinner outdoors in my parents garden because I had just tested positive for COVID and you know you wrap up warm you get over it I went to see a show outside last Christmas and it was we had a lovely time so I think you're exactly right and not just do I think that's a really interesting thought. I think people are far more willing and far more 
excited to engage with those changes that audiences are far more willing and far more excited to engage with those changes than maybe we as theatre makers give them credit for. Mm. I suppose though the difference is if you're going to see a show outside, then you know to dress the part. Whereas if you're going to see something inside, we have this expectation of the yeah. perfect environment, yeah, and the perfect temperature and how mm-hmm. what we view comfort as. Mm-hmm. So that's the fundamental shift, I suppose, that we'd need people to understand. Is mm-hmm. There's not always the perfect environment to make that building more sustainable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And actually with theatres, of course, lots of theatres are in old buildings mm-hmm. that require a lot of upbringing. Um, so what are the challenges for those more historic spaces that would traditionally be far colder, for example? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, big challenges. Obviously, cost is the biggest one. We did a survey a couple of years ago. We identified that about a quarter of historic theatres have not done very much on sustainability to improve the sustainability of their buildings. And the biggest challenge for nearly all of them was cost. To make an old Victorian building fully sustainable, you're going to be spending £10 million, something like that. So a lot of money. But the good news is, and we're encouraging people to use the Theatre Green Book because it, it goes back to your point, Osman, about small steps you might not be able to afford to re-insulate your building or replace the aircon system anytime soon, but you can do other smaller steps like double glazing, curtain at your front door, all sorts of other ways of, of retaining heat in the building and not losing energy. So we would encourage people to start the journey, even if they haven't got millions of pounds that they could fundraise, because most people haven't. Do you mind if I jump in with a question kind of on the back of that? Is, of course. That, okay, great. Um, just, I heard a quote a couple of weeks ago that's, kind of got me thinking about the way that we operate as the greenhouse, which is the the greenest building is a building that already exists. Mm-hmm. Given what you were saying about these kind of old buildings and the cost and the mm. kind of sustainability implications, do you think that statement rings true for theatre buildings or do you think that we're better off kind of levelling and rebuilding, basically? I don't know the exact figures, but, sure. but the embodied carbon in knocking down a Victorian theatre and building a brand new one far outweighs 30 or right. 40 years' worth of use, right. even in, in an inefficient building. Sure. So we take the view that you need to think very carefully if you're going to build a new theatre. Right. Why, why do we really need one? Yeah. Is there another building that we could repurpose or yeah. that could be upgraded to suit our needs? Mm. Uh, and we would never say, don't ever build a new building. <laughs> sure. I think we need to think longer and harder about whether it's really needed or whether we can use the existing estate, as it were. Yeah. Cool. That's interesting. And of course, with the greenhouse, you're not just a theatre company. You are a pop-up space. So yes. you're creating mm. spaces but in a very sustainable way. Mm-hmm. So what's sort of the impetus for you wanting to create those sustainable spaces rather than work with existing spaces? Um, the That's a great question. And the impetus is changing. That's kind of why I asked this question, because we're <laughs> starting to rethink and reframe like how we conceive of ourselves as an organisation. At the moment, we're in the process of looking for a longer term home. And a big part of that debate has been, OK, do we use the kind of style of structure that we've already used and repurpose it? Or do we try to find a building, maybe not a theatre, but an existing building and, yeah, update and repurpose it to be something new? To answer the question more directly, the reason why the greenhouse exists in the way that it does is a big part of our initial idea was about helping people connect with the natural world. And the greenhouse is designed as a kind of uh, hybrid indoor and outdoor space as a clear roof so people can connect with the sky. There's no floor so they can feel the grass beneath their feet. And as far as I know, there aren't buildings without roofs and floors. Um, but if, I, if you come across one, please let me know. I'll be looking. Uh, yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> and that's the interesting challenge that we're facing up to now when we're thinking about potentially trying to take over an existing building is, OK, how can we still help people to maintain and form those relationships within an existing building? I personally believe without sounding like that guy. I really love nature. I love being outside. I love hiking, all that kind of stuff. And I personally believe that's actually the biggest 
challenge in the climate crisis is just our relationship with nature. It's as we move into cities, as we urbanize, people's relationship with nature has changed so much over the last hundred years. And just helping people to spend like half an hour in a semi-outdoor setting and connect with those really beautiful and amazing natural assets. I think goes a long way to changing behaviours. It's so important because we're so busy, aren't we, and sort yeah. of living these crazily frenetic lifestyles exactly. in cities that we forget that actually we can take some time to breathe. Yeah. And actually, Oslin, with your work, you focus so much on nature. What's the impetus of that? Is that trying to get people to connect with nature? So when I studied biology in university and I did a master's degree in botany, my f- imagination was full of plants and organic structures and forms and all this stuff. And I started just trying to create imaginary landscapes for people to feel peaceful when they look at on their wall, they see something like they can meditate, relax, and it's also good for carbon footprint, I believe, because they don't have to go out. They can just look at the painting instead of screens or uh, any kind of laptops. So I love nature and I love being part of it. And I always wanted to be an artist since I was a child. When I moved to London, I had a chance to become an artist and it was a great opportunity for me to express myself and use the imagination of plants and all these beautiful exotic flowers that I studied. Yes, I mean, I try to give that energy to people. My main aim is creating joy, vitality in their life And I try to use acrylics instead of oils, for example, another small step I try to do with my practice, because oils are very toxic for artists, and we don't know what kind of effect they create when they go to people's houses also. They stay a long time in the house. It's so important, and I think as well, you know, the arts can provide that escapism. Mm. So both taking us to a place we may not be able to go, but also sort of sparking conversation, which I suppose leads me to a big question, which is what do you all see as the role of arts in the climate discourse? What can the arts do to further that conversation? I would like to say art can change people's life. And for example, I did a fiberglass egg for the queen, the late queen, as a Wow, one of the seven, that's so cool. <laughs> one of the seven artists in London. And why did I do it? The first thing I got in the email saying that they will auction these eggs and all the funds will go to the wildlife coexistence with human. And it's so impressive that art can create a change like that, that a piece of art can make our world better. So now they're going to auction these eggs There will be a huge exhibition around London in 2025, the big egg hunt in the Easter. And all this funding will be used for that reason. And it's really making me proud of being an artist. Definitely. And that shows the power of arts to change, exactly as you're saying. So whether it's sort of the funds being used for good or to provoke a conversation, I think this shows what art and theatre and the general arts can do. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of theatre, a lot of the time is about empathy and about being able to walk in somebody else's shoes, understand the world from somebody else's perspective, uh, whose life and kind of lived experience might be very different to yours. And I think one of the challenges with getting people to take sustain, you know, the environmental crisis seriously is that it all feels a long way off for some people. Mm-hmm. And so they can't see the connection between what they're doing now and 
what's going to happen to the three generations away or in 30, 40, 50 years' time. I know it's actually frighteningly close, but it still feels like a long way off, I think, psychologically for a lot of people. So if visual art, drama can bring that reality to the forefront and get you to experience on a human level what the meaning of it is and how what you do with your waste today <laughs> is going to have a real life impact for someone living, you know, in an area at risk of flooding or whatever. You know, I think that's the value is about getting people to really feel and understand why this is such an important thing to, to take action on. Just jumping off of that. So, yeah, this point you make is well researched and well documented. There's an academic called Timothy Morton who uses this term hyperobjectivity, which we may, maybe know about, which is this idea that or refers to the climate crisis as a hyperobject in that it's something so big that it's genuinely impossible for us as an individual human to even understand what it is because its its impact is so wide-reaching. And what I think he's from Rice University in the US, and what Morton basically says is art and philosophy are therefore essential tools because they're specifically storytelling, or at least that's how I think about it, specifically through storytelling. Storytelling is such a vital way of how we understand our place in the world and our relationship with other people. And by telling stories that aren't necessarily about the climate but help people connect with the climate, with each other and with the environment, it becomes all of a sudden much less about this huge crazy idea and much more about the things that I do in my everyday life and how that story affects me and how as I write my story, I can impact that as well. Ultimately, I think there are two answers to the question for me. Answer one, the kind of blunter answer is we're in the midst of a climate crisis and every industry, not just the arts, has a deep responsibility to change the way that it works if we hope to continue existing as a species. I hate to put the damper on it, but I think that is just the statistical truth. But on the kind of brighter side, what art can do that I think no other art form can do is exactly that, right? It can help people understand their place in the world. It can tell stories that excite people, engage them and encourage them to do good for themselves and for communities that they're a part of or that are maybe a little bit further removed from them. And so I think, yeah, we have a responsibility as artists to make those changes, but also we should recognise that we have a huge ability to encourage and help people to see the world differently. Most definitely. And I think you've all touched on the fact that so many people just think it's so far off. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of, oh, this doesn't affect mm -hmm. our day to day. Whereas actually those small changes and changes we're talking about will affect our day to day and they'll affect the future of the people around us. Mm -hmm. So I think it's much more important than some people are willing to acknowledge. Mm -hmm. I suppose if you had a magic wand, what <laughs> change would you love to see arts organisations, galleries and theatres be making in the coming year to become more sustainable. So magic wand, money's no issue. What are those immediate changes that we'd love to see happen to sort of help this discourse move along? I think something that is achievable, but that maybe is does still require a lot of work. Uh, I work less with kind of the large, large organisations that the Theatre Trust might be working with and more with fringe theatre organisations. And just material awareness and resource awareness, it is so easy to source. If you're doing a fringe production, I guarantee you, you can source 100% of the materials you need secondhand. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I will put my career on the line and state that. I know that as a fact. And not just about sourcing them secondhand, but thinking about, you know, am I choosing polyester or am I choosing cotton, like thinking about where the materials are coming from and where they're going afterwards. A big thing that we do at the Greenhouse when we're working with other organisations is a waste budget. And I think that really helps with this resource awareness. Every time we're creating a design for a new project, we create an acquisition list. And as we're creating that list, we also create a list of, okay, once we purchase this thing, what are we going to do with it when it's done? Where are we getting it from and where's it going when we're done with it? It doesn't take a huge amount of effort. And if every fringe arts organization can make that change, just adding that little bit of resource awareness, I think it would make a huge impact on the sustainability of the industry.
Yeah, most definitely. And there are so many props that just bought off Amazon yeah. with obviously sometimes is important and we can't ignore that. Mm-hmm. But also sometimes ease takes over and people don't put the time yeah. into their planning yeah, yeah. to think about that, do they? That, and it's so also true. that thing about it, it is about timing and planning. And so you need to probably spend longer on production, you know, get the production team in earlier. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you guys already do this, but if you don't have your designer and your director on early days, then you're not going to be able to achieve the sustainability you want. And yeah, certainly in terms of planning around things like buying props and costumes and things, there's a tendency to go, the director goes, I want this tomorrow. Um, and <laughs> yeah. the, so the production manager goes online and gets something from Amazon. And then the next day they want something else. Mm-hmm. And so you have multiple deliveries. So it's not just the, the object itself, which is wasteful mm-hmm. and not reusable or not from a sustainable source. It's actually the cost of getting it to the theatre uh, every time. Shall I jump in with my thoughts? Please do. Just get started if you haven't already. Mm-hmm. And if you yeah. have started, think about what next. So, of course, I would say use the Theatre Green book. We're bringing out a new edition next year, around about summer next year, second edition, from the l- learning from what we did and the feedback we've got on the first editions. That will have uh, production tracker tools. It will have a home survey tool for buildings. And it will also have an operations tracker tool. So you can actually start to measure what you're doing and work out where you're being most wasteful or where you're creating the most carbon emissions and then make changes there. So you'll be able to track what you're doing. So use the Green Book. Definitely. And work that into your planning as well. Don't just use it. Allow time to use it. Oslan, what do you think? I think canvas companies could create hemp canvases instead of cotton, for example. That would be a big change because cotton takes so much water to produce. Also, plant based paints can be produced by like a beetroot I used that kind of paints before I was painting it phone cases 100% plant based phone cases one of the companies for and they are exactly the same paint as the artists use and it can be more widely used environmentally friendly products for the artists yeah I think they, these two things are can make huge difference So again, it's about making people think about their planning Mm -hmm. and think about what products they're using. So it shows that across the arts, we just all need to do that bit more planning and a bit more thinking. Mm -hmm. Well, we've given people lots to think about. (laughs) So to round off today's conversation on the Pink podcast, we're going to move on to Head First, which is a question that's placing importance on mental health in the arts. And we touched on this earlier with how frenetic the industry is and how important it is to escape to nature. So in this frenetic industry, what are you currently doing for you? So, Ollie, why don't you kick us off and tell us your thoughts? Okay, yeah. Um, oh, maybe it's a bit too intimate. I've been bathing. <laughs> Is that been, not something I've you normally been, do? Well, well, no, I never wash. <laughs> no, I told you earlier. Yeah, <laughs> no, um, no, I usually shower, but we've got a project on at the moment and it's been quite quite hectic as it always is. And over the last week or so, I've just been revisiting baths. It's so nice to just set aside. When you're in a bath, you can't do anything else. You're wet, you know. It's so nice to just set aside half an hour and just kind of sit and soak. Maybe that's not the most sustainable answer as well, actually. But, <laughs> but it's about relaxation, um, no, it is, it? It is, it taking is. some time for you. Yeah, exactly. And I think ultimately, really what it is, is taking time when I'm not on a device and I'm not contactable. And anyone who I'm working with knows you know now's not the time um i love doing my emails in the bath so oh, i obviously really? need to follow suit with you and decide that's that bath... dangerous well, probably yeah. next time when i'm not here and someone else yeah. is hosting we'll know why uh, but yeah but bathing bathing amazing john what about you so me i'm singing i'm in a community choir and it's just a lot of fun we had a rehearsal last night actually and so that's why my voice is a little bit sore and i think it's both the physical act of singing it's very kind of 
centering and grounding for you and your body. And it takes you out of your head where we spend far too much time. And it's also that communal thing. Even though I work in theatre, I don't know, like a lot of people, I still spend more time behind my screen than I do with people. And so just reconnecting with other people is really important and the communal creating a piece of art, a piece of singing is part of that. Definitely. And again, it's about finding that moment where we're not on our devices and behind a screen and you can actually just escape and enjoy something. Just thinking about trying to get the beat right. <laughs> we'll be coming to one of the concerts. What's my harmony? <laughs> Aslan, what are you doing for yourself? So I meditate. I started meditating recently. I was always against the idea of just sitting and closing your eyes because I have lots of painting ideas in my mind that I have to do all the time. <laughs> But in the last six months, I started meditating in the morning and it's really, really useful. After that, I feel like totally awake and totally aware of whatever happens around me. And it's really good for mental health as well, reducing the stress. And also I go for a walk in the nature for a long walk. I am next to the Hampstead Heath. These two things, also my painting process is kind of a meditative process because time and space is disappearing while painting, which is a very interesting experience for me. Also, I did a charity event for combat stress, which is for veterans' mental health issues. Like every year I am giving a small painting for them and they auction it and use the funds for that reason. Amazing. Yeah, these things, it's amazing, yeah. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like we're all trying to take some time for us. So thank you so much to John, to Ollie and to Oslem for chatting about such an important issue facing the arts and hopefully we've given everybody listening some food for thought. So next episode I'll be talking to performers Sue Pollard and Alexis Gregory all about their first theatre memories and how they got into the industry. So please do give us a follow on at the Pink Podcast One and I look forward to having you with us for the next conversation on the Pink Podcast.